If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Here in the UK, February is LGBT plus history month. So we thought this would be a perfect opportunity to revisit one of the key moments in LGBT history with this podcast, which first aired in 2019. Speaking to Matt Elton, historian Chris Parks explored the background to the 1969 Stonewall riots, when protests erupted at New York's Stonewall Inn. Please be aware that some of the discussion in regards to responses to the riot contains language that some may find offensive. This summer marks the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, which is a thing that I think some people might have heard of and some people might not be so familiar with. What would you explain it as? So Stonewall is the quick way of referring to the Stonewall riots, which were a series of uprisings over three days in late June and early July of 1969 in Greenwich Village of New York, uh, New York City. The Stonewall Inn was a bar, a very popular bar for all sorts of different people in New York at the time, mostly gay men and women, but also lots of trans people too. And in the early hours of June 28th, 1969, it was raided, raided by the police. Not an uncommon occurrence for the Stonewall Inn, indeed for many gay bars in New York City at the time, but this time, quite uncommonly, instead of the raid going smoothly and all the patrons being filed out and dispersing, a crowd formed and at about 1.20 in the morning, they fought back. They started pelting the policemen with coins and with cobblestones and bricks, forcing them into the bar, terrified into the bar, and started a riot. That riot went on all night and then the next night the rioters came back and the night after that they came back too. Maybe more importantly, though, that event, those nights of riots, became an emblem for LGBT rights, LGBT liberation in the United States and across the world from that moment on. So you mentioned that this wasn't an uncommon occurrence. Mm -hmm. What was it that led to this specific incident then growing to be such a thing? So in the long term, there was a long history of homophobia, of persecution and discrimination against 
queer people uh, all across the United States. Uh, this was nothing new. And indeed, by the 1960s, there had been a period of about 20 years of intensifying persecution of queer people. During the period of the Cold War, gay men especially were hounded out, uh, well, gay men and lesbians, I should say, were hounded out of the federal government out of fears that they would be susceptible to blackmail by the Soviets. This is referred to as, uh, by historians as the Lavender Scare, just like the Red Scare was persecuting people with leftist leanings. So there was a long history of persecution against queer people. There was also equally a long history of resistance to this persecution. As early as the 1950s, organizations began to spring up across the United States that were pushing back against the state repression, protesting against the uh, firing of gay men and lesbians from the federal government and against police harassment. Those efforts, although very important for laying the groundwork for what came later, hadn't really accomplished very much by the 1960s. But in the 1960s, things began to change. They were changing all over the United States. This was the decade, after all, of many kinds of liberation. This was the decade of women's liberation, uh, pushing back against sexism and patriarchal discrimination. It was the decade of a sort of crescendo of civil rights activism for African Americans. You know, the Civil Rights Act was passed in this decade, the Voting Rights Act. So too with uh, Hispanic Americans and indigenous Americans, they were all beginning to organize in a way that they really hadn't done before. Young people were also protesting. This was the period of the protests against the Vietnam War or American involvement in Vietnam. So there was an energy of protest and liberation and pushing back against the established order and the manifestations of that established order, in this case, the police. More immediately, the things that led to the Stonewall riots. So as I mentioned earlier, in New York City during the 1960s, gay bars were raided all the time. And in fact, the Stonewall Inn had been raided earlier that week on the 24th of June, 1969, the Stonewall Bar was raided again. Now, usually these raids didn't amount to much, Partially because, and this was very true in the case of Stonewall, there was complicity by the police with the owners of these bars, almost all of whom, the owners of the bars, I mean, almost all of whom were involved in the mafia. In late June of 1969, there was an effort by the police to crack down on these bars that were owned by the mafia. Some of that had to do with local politics. 1969 had been an election year or was, was going to be an election year for the New York mayoralty. And partially because of that, partially because there was a desire to shut down some of these bars anyways, an increased intensity of raids began during late June of 1969. One of the officers who organized this raid, a man named Detective Seymour Pine, decided that this moment, you know, the, the raid that was going to happen on the 28th of June 1969 was going to be big and it was going to shut down Stonewall for good. So he got more officers than usual. Uh, usually it would just be three or four. This time he had about eight or nine. He got agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which is a kind of a regulatory agency in the United States, as well as from the FBI. You know, lots of people were tipped off that would make this the raid that would shut down Stonewall for good. And maybe for that reason, there was a little more intensity and pressure placed on the on the patrons at the time. On the other hand, though, the patrons themselves, the people who were in the bar at the time, fought back in a way that the police were not expecting. We should talk a bit about what life was like for gay people in 
America in the 60s. What sort of experience of prejudice and discrimination would they have experienced in the years before Stonewall? Life for queer people prior to Stonewall has kind of been told with a traditional story. And the story basically goes like this, that life for queer people prior to Stonewall was unremitting horror, that nothing went well for them. And there is a decent amount of evidence to corroborate that interpretation. Homosexuality, homosexual acts were illegal in virtually every jurisdiction in the United States, punishable with extremely harsh sentences, you know, 10, 15 years in prison. Homosexuality was considered a mental illness by uh, you know, various medical outfits. So queer people were thought of not just as being sort of morally wrong for whatever reason, but as being sick, as being actually diseased in some way. And there was an intense social taboo around homosexuality for the medical reasons I mentioned, also for religious reasons, which had a deep root in American society. That's the traditional view of queer life prior to Stonewall, it is by no means the only view. I think a more enhanced understanding of what queer life was like acknowledges that prior to Stonewall, there were, yes, there was oppression, but there was also resistance to oppression. There were, as I mentioned earlier, efforts to organize, you know, the homophile movement, the Mattachine Society, they had organized, Daughters Belitis had been organized all through the 1950s and 60s to try to push back against this. And also in less organized way, queer people existed in American society prior to Stonewall and they lived their lives just the way that queer people do now. They went off and they made spaces for themselves. They formed the bars or rather they went to the bars that became identified as you know, being for their communities in New York, but also in you know, hundreds of communities all across the United States and in you know, non-commercial establishments too. They found places in, in the countryside, on beaches and uh, park, park grounds that were places that they knew they could congregate and socialize, and also informal places like house parties. So on the one hand, there was definitely oppression, discrimination, and quite a bit of harassment and, and indeed violence against queer people. But there was also efforts to push back against this and just the, the sort of unremarkable living of life in the midst of discrimination, but that nevertheless was a place and an experience of just living authentically, even amidst all of the oppression around them. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Some people think of Stonewall as being like this sort of single... A single event. Whereas actually, if we say there were things leading up to it, it's not like a thing without context. The way that Stonewall certainly has been written about and remembered can sometimes overinflate its importance. People think of it that Stonewall isn't just an event in LGBT history. It's the event. And, uh, you know, a lot of historians wrote that way. There are even, you know, books and documentaries that are titled with before Stonewall and after Stonewall. And there's no doubt that it is or was a watershed moment. Something genuinely did change you know, in 1969, the tempo and the tenor of LGBT activism picked up in a way that, frankly, was almost inconceivable beforehand. And it also carried on as well as revealed tensions within LGBT activism between people who were much more radical. And that's what the riots tend to be associated with, a kind of radical effort to really change society quickly and more accommodationist points of view. And that's maybe the way to contextualize Stonewall in response to your question. In the decades prior to Stonewall, in the 50s and the earlier 60s, the efforts to push back against harassment and discrimination against sexual minorities were modest and they were consciously very moderate. They were almost conservative in their outlook. The homophile activists of the 1950s and 60s deliberately projected an image of staid, regular, normal people who just wanted to be treated like everyone else because they were like everyone else. Stonewall kind of challenged that, partially by being in no way conservative. It was quite literally a riot. Quite a bit of damage was done to the Stonewall Bar or the Stonewall Inn, but also in terms of the rhetoric behind it. Stonewall was a moment not of trying to accommodate, not of trying to gradually adjust the police and the political structures of New York or generally to be more kind to queer people, but of outright challenging them and saying, no, this harassment has to stop now. You have to treat LGBT people with respect. And if you don't, we are not, well, we are not going to take that harassment anymore. We will actually fight back against it rather than just sort of condemning it with polite words. What do we know about the specific people who were involved in the rioting? This is one of the most interesting aspects of the Stonewall riots, and it's mighty, it might even be one of the reasons why they happened. The people who participated in the riots themselves and the people who attended Stonewall, you know, who went to the Stonewall Inn regularly, were a fascinating cross-section, an unusual cross-section of sexual and gender minorities in the United States, or rather in New York City at the time. The Stonewall Bar was rather remarkable for a few reasons. First of all, it was a place where there was a little more freedom to express oneself than there were in other bars. Stonewall Inn was one of the few places where people could dance you know, freely without being harassed by the bar staff. Rather remarkable when you think of it for a gay bar that you wouldn't be able to dance. But that actually was quite unusual because the laws were so strict about even same-sex couples touching one another at the time. It was also a place where a very diverse mix of people came together. A lot of the bars in New York City catered to a kind of upper-class, well-to-do, predominantly white clientele. In the Stonewall, 
upper-class, white, well-to-do people did attend, but there were also lots of working-class people. There were also lots of African-Americans and Puerto Rican people who quite literally were not, would not be allowed into some of the, the Tonier bars. There were drag queens. There were trans people. You know, a lot of them called themselves transvestites at the time, but we might today identify at least some of them as being uh, transgendered or just somewhere along the trans spectrum. Uh, there were also you know, things that we don't really have anymore, uh, what were called flame queens at the time, which were people who probably identified as male but did themselves up in a, in a rather more flamboyant way. So there was a great diversity of people at the Stonewall Inn. And arguably that's one of the reasons why the Stonewall riots happened because it wasn't unlike in, the, in these more staid locations. There were people at the Stonewall Bar who had come from communities who had faced police harassment before and who had also been much closer witnesses to the efforts to push back against police harassment than a lot of the more conservative and maybe more timid uh, people from well-to-do families. In terms of specific people who were there, well, actually, we can see this in some of the specific people that we know attended there. Among the sort of well-to-do, connected, and, uh, you know, white middle-class activist side, we had people like Craig Rodwell and Dick Leish who were involved in homophile activism at the time. But there were also people like Sylvia Rivera and Martha P. Johnson. These were people who were women, trans women, people of color who attended this bar, who thought of it as being their space as much as it was a space you know, that, that was owned by Leash and by uh, Rodwell. So you had a, a great diversity of people. You had people who were coming from many different communities who were involved in nascent LGBT activism at the time. Also people who had nothing to do with that, but who came in with their own experiences of resisting police brutality, of resisting state oppression, and of knowing in different ways what it was like to be marginalized and how to deal with that marginalization when, you know, you were being hauled off in a police van. How was the rioting uh, reported in the media? So there were a few different ways that the rioting was reported in the media. And this is, again, one of the fascinating things about why Stonewall became the iconic event that it was. The traditional media, the mainstream media, I guess we'd call it now, whitewashed it. Uh, the New York Times had a story about police officers being assaulted at a bar raid. And it was on like page 33 of the New York Times, way at the back, tiny story. And as the, the, the headline suggested, it was not about anybody fighting back. It was about the poor police officers getting assaulted. The New York Daily News, a tabloid at the time, reported at the Stonewall riots calling them, or the headline for it was, Homo Nest Raided, Queen Bees Are Stinging Mad. You know, so they made a pun about it, and, and it was sort of teasing the, 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 the rioters who took place. So mainstream press reporting of the riots was at best completely ignorant of the, the, the sort of any liberationist discourse about it and at worst outright homophobic. Really crucially though, there were other voices that began to be heard, other voices that publicized news of these riots. And these came from outlets that were run by queer people, in fact run by gay rights activists at the time. One of the organizers for uh, or in the homophile movement, a man I mentioned earlier named Dick Leish, he produced a pamphlet that reported on the events that happened and made a call for action in it. And it was titled The Hairpin Drop Heard Around the World. This is sort of a, a double pun here. It was a pun on the old headline, The Shot Heard Around the World, which was about the, you know, the 
firing on the main or something. Uh, but it was also a play on words because dropping a hairpin was a way of subtly indicating in public that one was homosexual. Uh, once you had dropped all your hairpins, that meant you would let your hair down and so you could you know, sort of relax and be yourself. So there was that pamphlet that went out, there were efforts by the Mattachine Society of New York City, the local, the largest local gay rights organization, to call attention to this, to drum up support and sympathy among gay people, among lesbians in New York City, to call attention to the fact that there had been a raid and that the the people at the Stonewall Inn had fought back for once. They had actually put the police on the run uh, all night in June of 1969. And it was part of the reason uh, or part of the reason why these riots went on as long as they did is that the word got out about them. People knew about these riots and so they came back. They, everybody came to the Stonewall Inn on the second night to see the damage and they stayed there for the second night and rioted again. And then they came back a third night and rioted a third time. Maybe even more importantly, the reporting didn't stop there. The effort to remember what had happened that night continued in the weeks and months afterwards. And it was because of that effort to keep this momentum going, to keep people remembering that the riots had happened and that queer people had pushed back against the police for once, that led to the efforts to commemorate this raid. And it was that commemoration that turned into the Christopher Street Day Parade that was held exactly one year after the riots in June 29th of 1970. That was the first gay pride parade in history. And it's the pride parade that still goes on in the last week of June every year in New York City and that spread across the world starting the yearly gay pride movements or the yearly gay pride parades that now happen all over the world. So from this sort of single action this thing very quickly bloomed. I, I had no idea that it was sort of feeding back to itself as it was happening. So the reportage was informing the event as it was still going on. Was there any significant backlash to this kind of growing movement? There was a backlash in a manner of speaking, but it did not or it didn't come from the place that I suspect most people would imagine. The first real evidence of a backlash to the Stonewall riots came from other gay people. It came from the more conservative elements in LGBT activism at the time, the homophile movement, who saw this as a disaster. They were horrified at a riot breaking out, that queer people had rioted, they had thrown bottles at the police, that the rioters themselves had been people that these homophile activists didn't want associated with them. They were drag queens, they were, they were street kids, they were transvestites, they were the people that were so lacking in dignity and in respect in polite society that the calls that they were making, the homophile activists were making for greater respect for homosexual people, it would never gain them respectability if these calls for homosexual rights were associated with these terribly disrespectful drag queens and, and flame queens. So the immediate backlash to the civil riots came from these more conservative homophile elements. That, I think it's fair to say, trailed off after a while when it became clear that this really had become a flashpoint for greater activism. In terms of anti-homosexual rights backlash to the riots, that took a little longer to come together. In the city itself, the police and the political organization 
didn't exactly back off, but they didn't clamp down in a sort of counter raid the way that you know one might have expected to to happen in in another city or in another country. But there wasn't any great advancement of LGBT rights municipally many years. But over the next ten years, oh, through the through the nineteen seventies, there were advancements that were made in anti discrimination legislation in New York and in many other places across the United States. There were successes in getting homosexuality removed from the diagnostic statistical manual uh, that doctors use to diagnose or psychologists use to, to diagnose mental disorders. They got homosexuality removed from that in 1973. So after Stonewall, there were advancements for gay rights. But then a backlash to those advancements began. And by the time you got to the late 1970s, there were some very well-organized backlashes to LGBT rights. Most prominently in the United States, the Anita Bryant campaign, uh, the Save Our Children campaign in Florida in the 1970s, actually got an anti-discrimination ordinance repealed that had been passed a few years earlier. Similar campaigns, what you know, colluding campaigns organized to get other anti-discrimination ordinances repealed. They uh, quite prominently managed to get a proposition, a public vote orchestrated in California, something called Proposition 6 that would have banned all gay people from working as teachers and in public offices in the state of California. This campaign was uh, another flashpoint in LGBT rights. It was mercifully defeated at the polls, but it was a very intense, very scary moment for LGBT activists because it looked like it was going to pass for a while. Uh, these were the uh, some of the events that were depicted in the 2008 movie Milk, which uh, is actually a pretty good movie depicting them. So that backlash to Stonewall wasn't really specific to Stonewall, but the events that Stonewall initiated and that picked up speed in the years afterwards did eventually provoke a backlash that really came to a fore in the late 1970s. Are there any other events that you think uh, have been overshadowed by Stonewall that are just as important, perhaps elsewhere in the world? There's always a danger in over-investing one moment with too much importance. I've already talked about how there was a long buildup of, of homophile rights activists in the 1950s and 60s. And to be honest, without that, I don't think the Stonewall riots could have been a flashpoint moment. They needed that infrastructure of activists and of uh, letters and, and of publications that existed to be able to seize on a moment like this once it came about. Although, to be honest, at the same time, there were other moments that frankly, should have been just as much of a flashpoint for resistance, but weren't. There was a, a raid on the Stonewall Inn earlier in the week. There were raids on other bars in New York during the 1960s. There was a, a raid on a bar in New York City in 1970 called the Snake Pit Bar. That didn't you know, was it wasn't a flashpoint. There were raids in other cities and other bars. The the Compton's Cafeteria Riot in San Francisco in I think it was 1966. The New Year's Ball raid in San Francisco as well. The Black Cat raid in Los Angeles. Uh, all of these were other moments where queer people were harassed by the police and pushed back, but it didn't become a major flashpoint moment. Whether or not those are moments that are being overlooked too much because of the emphasis on Stonewall is maybe a matter that's up for debate. I think it is important to note that there were other moments like this, though. If we expand things a little more broadly, look around the world or look at the broader sweep of LGBT history, big flashy moments like Stonewall get a lot of attention. But there's just as much of a reason to focus on the 
dull, unremarkable, but really important work of organizing and petitioning and getting people elected and pushing back, you know, protesting in smaller but more consistent ways in the years after Stonewall and before, but also but, but in the years especially after Stonewall, that I think is just as important for understanding why LGBT civil rights made the advances it did in the years after Stonewall. It's really impossible to tell the story of LGBT rights activism, its successes and indeed uh, its setbacks without talking about HIV AIDS. Stonewall certainly set off a new tempo and, and a new period of LGBT activism. But in the 1980s, when HIV emerged in the gay communities in uh, New York City and, and San Francisco, and then kind of metastasized into this uh, epidemic and then global pandemic, that created a whole new stream of urgency and of activism with slightly different objectives, uh, different targets, different requirements for organizing for activism that, than the ones that were initiated by the Stonewall riots. Those are just as crucial for understanding what LGBT civil rights are, for understanding the journey that they took, you know, forwards and backwards, for the advances that were made and for the very, very significant and serious setbacks that occurred along the way as well. I mean, Stonewall has international resonance. In other countries, whenever there's been moments of resistance against the state and especially against police by uh, sexual minorities, gender minorities, inevitably it is called that country's Stonewall. But at the same time, many countries did not have a Stonewall moment. Uh, the United Kingdom, for instance, you know, you asked me earlier, you know, preparing for this interview, was there a, a, a moment in the UK that was like Stonewall? And the quick answer to that is no. There wasn't really a, a great big moment of a riot against the police in the, the image of, uh, of a Stonewall riot. Rather, and maybe more interestingly, or, or just as importantly, there was a slow progression of activism, of lobbying people in government to push for law reform. You know, it was called, there was an organization in the UK called the Homosexual Law Reform Society, which eventually got the government to produce a report called the Wolfington Report that recommended the decriminalization of homosexuality. And that after 10 years did lead to a partial decriminalization or at least a decriminalization in certain situations. So in terms of overlooking uh, or, or, you know, Stonewall sucking up all the oxygen in the atmosphere from other moments, to an extent, yes, but only insofar as it's a very spectacular moment that kind of commands attention. I think there are other moments that are important in the United States and elsewhere for the advancement of the rights of sexual and gender minorities. Those stories, I think, do get told. Maybe they aren't quite as flashy as Stonewall, but they are being told. There are wonderful historians working on these, these sorts of histories all over the United Kingdom, all over the world. Do you think that Stonewall has been misremembered subsequently? Mm -hmm. And to what extent has that been sort of almost a deliberate process? Again, one of the, th the remarkable things about Stonewall is that it was remembered at all. Those riots that I just mentioned about, you know, the, the Compton's Cafeteria riot and the Snake Pit Bar, you know, chances are good most of the people listening to this and you probably didn't uh, – had never heard of them before. So the fact that Stonewall is remembered at all is – you know, paradoxically, almost a kind of misremembrance. It is an exception to the rule of these sorts of events from the mid-20th century. Nevertheless, that we remember Stonewall has created a kind of mythology 
about it as well. And there have been a couple of different kinds of, of misremembering in that regard. One I've already alluded to, this effort to, or rather the, the way that Stonewall revealed a tension in gay rights activism between those with a more urgent call, sort of radical activists who really wanted to push against police brutality and to, to push against all kinds of inequalities in American society, and those who were more moderate, who were assimilationist, who wanted to proceed more cautiously to achieve more lasting reform. So there was an effort by both sides to kind of spin Stonewall in their image. Radical activists want to see it as a moment of, of great disruption of, of really pushing back against authority. Assimilationists want to see it more as a moment when a flashpoint came together that allowed the more durable, moderate advancements to be made. There were other efforts to spin Stonewall. There were other stories told about Stonewall that tended to emphasize or de-emphasize certain elements. Kind of connected to that effort to make it a more moderate event or to portray it in more moderate ways the role of trans people and the role of people from uh, ethnic minority communities, especially African-Americans and Puerto Ricans, their role or the role of the people from these communities in the Stonewall riots tended to get elided in a lot of the early reporting. Admittedly, LGBT historians themselves didn't do this quite so badly, but especially in mainstream reporting and maybe in mainstream collective memory, the role of many different minority communities rather than just sort of middle-class white gay men tended to get downplayed for many years. There's been a very substantial and I would say successful push against that in the years since then. And if anything, some of the trans people and some of the African-American people who took part in the riots are some of the most emblematic ones now. We think of Marsha P. Johnson or Sylvia Rivera, you know, who, who are kind of if not role models, then at least, as I said, emblems of the riot in a way that maybe, I don't know, Craig Rodwell isn't, who was also there and had a role to play, but maybe doesn't uh, carry the same emblematic role as they once did. Why do you think those figures were pushed to one side of the narrative for so long? Well, racism in LGBT communities is just as prominent as it is in any other slice of American life. So part of it was just the casual racism of deciding to emphasize or to de-emphasize the role of people from uh, ethnic minority communities. Again, I think it had to do with the desire to make it a less radical-seeming event, to portray Stonewall as part of a, a long and respectable march of rights for, for gay people uh, through the late 20th century. I think, too, that the, there was an element of, of access to, to the resources of telling history. You know, the, the, a lot of the people who got to tell their stories quickly and a lot of the people who got to, you know, become historians or to get on media programs like this to sort of talk about gay history for the last 50 years have tended to be people who got better educations or who had access to these resources through, uh, you know, whatever social capital they had. And those tended to be people from white communities and they tended to uh, tell the story from their perspectives. And maybe it's a, a sign of greater awareness of that that, that has led to, to a sort of correction and, a, and an inclusion of these much more diverse voices in telling the story of the Stonewall Riots. How then would you like people to think about this event and this wider history? I'd bring this back to that tension between the radical interpretations of Stonewall and the more assimilationist ones. I suppose if I had my way... It would be, or if I had my, my soapbox, which I do, 
I'd like people to acknowledge and embrace the radicalism that's inherent in the Stonewall riots. If you want to celebrate Stonewall as a moment of liberation, and I think we should, then we should be clear about what it was people were being liberated from or trying to liberate themselves from in June of 1969. Yes, it was homophobia in a general societal sense, but it was also a wider system. It was a regime of state-sanctioned violence against queer people, but also just of state-sanctioned violence generally, that at that moment was directed against queer people. Now, in the years since, we've accomplished a great deal in getting that violence against queer people lessened, but the capacity for violence by the state is still there, and its capacity to be directed against marginalized community still exists. And indeed, marginalized communities in the United States, in many countries, still feel that oppression still feel the uh, still are the targets of that violence in fact lgbt people are still the targets of that violence despite all the accomplishments that have been made the kinds of violence that are visited upon lgbt people because of their sexuality or just generally by the state still exists you know stonewall was a specific reaction to specific circumstances but it was also an expression of a deeper impulse that's very much relevant today anger against a system that uses the extraordinary powers of coercion and of setting norms and of the legitimate use of force that the state has to target and harass people who are at the margins of society because they think they can get away with it. Celebrating Stonewall, I think, or it ought to mean, acknowledging that for a few nights in 1969, one of the easiest and least sympathetic targets of state violence fought back. And that today, even if the same groups aren't being targeted in the same way anymore, there is still just as much of a reason to fight back. The effort to make the state and the power structures of our society treat vulnerable people with respect is a fight that is still very much underway. And regrettably, it's a fight that can still be lost. So we can, as a society, gain power from referring to history where this has happened and had a real impact. Yes, and to remember that it's still relevant today. The Stonewall riots happened in the past, and the reasons that they happened were specific to the conditions of 1969. But at the same time, the reasons that people riot against police brutality, people push back against discrimination, whether official or unofficial, you know, sanctioned and institutionalized or just quotidian and informal. Those reasons still exist today. Reading about Stonewall, hearing about Stonewall, understanding the events of the Stonewall riots, I think can remind people about the ways that injustices are still visited upon uh, people today and why everybody has a part in, everybody can have a part in pushing back against it if they choose to. That was Chris Parks in a conversation with Matt Elton recorded in 2019. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.